special treat at the last night. H.D. Swami, Sri Dayananda Swami. Dayananda is too much of a mouthful. You, you respond to H.D., right? I can't even pronounce my own name. So. H.D. <laughs> <laughs> Swami has been teaching the science of Krishna consciousness all over the world for over 40 years. He has a Ph.D. in Sanskrit, Indian studies from Harvard University. Uh, if you have questions in German, Italian, French, Spanish, Portuguese, English, or Sanskrit. Not English. Not English. <laughs> Finnish, Levisa's from Finland. Do you do Finnish? No, no. He speaks eight languages, so feel free to ask questions Finland. in your own language. Yes. And uh, he has a very fascinating talk for us tonight, and interactive. Questions you have, he's been answering them for 40 plus years. Called, Can There Be a Spiritual Science? Ah, got to go to work now. So, um, thank you all for coming. Um, if we look briefly at the history of uh, Actually, if I'm narcissistic, I may forget my talk and just start looking at myself. Anyway, we uh, trace the history of the relationship between science and religion. Uh, the present situation, uh, not among thinkers, not among, let's say, cutting edge philosophy, but a sort of uh, trickle down wisdom um, there are basically dimensions of life one is objective and that is in the sense of the systematic study of the natural world the physical world through our senses and extensions of our senses such as microscopes telescopes etc and then there's the subjective world where people just give their opinions. And that's the world of, uh, I guess you could say, of, it's the world of religion. About ultimate reality, uh, that is basically their opinion. In fact, I mean, I don't want to get into the philosophical catastrophe, but just, um, just briefly, it, the way it trickles down, the way it comes down to, so to speak, the man on the the woman on the street is like, oh, that's your truth, or this is my truth, as if there are an infinite number of worlds and everyone has one of their own. So that if right now there's, say, like very roughly 7 billion people on the planet, there are 7, seven billion realities because everyone has their own truth. This, of course, would uh, entail amazing logistical problems. I mean, how all these seven billion worlds somehow interact and actually would absolutely contradict everything we know about science. That's a whole other topic, which is interesting. Um, anyway, so this basic idea, there's an objective world, which is the world that we learn about through science. Science has kind of given itself this flattering uh, self-definition. And then there's a subjective world which is the world of religion, spiritual things, and so on. As I said, this very rich 
extinction is not, well, there's a lot of new developments in academic philosophy and just generally people who think, but realizing there are all kinds of problems and contradictions and inconsistencies in that simplistic division of the world into, into two dimensions. And uh, of course, people didn't always think that way. That's very much a modern way. And, uh, you know, they say, they say you can't see the forest for the trees. So you find even scholars, let's say they can be more objective about the Roman Empire or ancient Egypt than they can about 2018. Because we're right in the middle of the world today, uh, it's not so easy to take a step back and look at it objectively. And so things that are really just ways that people think nowadays, uh, we tend to think, well, that's just the way it is. That's reality. And if you study history, you find that most people at most times in history, uh, somewhat foolishly thought that just the way people think during their life, that's reality. And in that spirit, of, uh, and that's fair. Let, let's take a look at the history of science, the history of the relationship between science and religion. And then, of course, eventually getting to tonight's topic. <laughs> Can it be a, a spiritual science? With a little luck, we'll actually make it to the topic. No, I'm just kidding. This is actually all part of the topic. So, first of all, people in ancient times, by ancient times, I'm kind of being. Uh, I don't know, from Western perspective, by ancient times, I mean Greco-Roman civilization, which was intellectually very sophisticated, probably more than our civilization. We have better machines, but they actually knew how to think. So um, back then, uh, let's look at Aristotle, your friend and mine, Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher. Um, he actually coined these, these words or at least he popularized them uh, to explain that there are different ways that we get knowledge. And one way of knowledge he called physics, which is what we understand as science, studying the natural world. The other way of getting knowledge he called metaphysics. Uh, amazingly, he used a Greek word <laughs> because he spoke Greek. Anyway, so meta, meta in Greek uh, means after or what is beyond. So there's physics, which is the study of what is actually somewhat uh, unfortunately called the natural world because many things are natural that aren't part of the empirical world. But anyway, um, the physical world, the metaphysics, what is beyond the physical world? And uh, so at that time, Aristotle and most of his friends, other philosophers, uh, took it for granted that these are just two ways of getting knowledge. For example, in a modern university, hopefully no one would say something like, well, what is it? Is it geology or is it uh, physics? Well, what do you mean? Or, I mean, someone studies geology and someone, someone studies physics, someone studies history. These are just different fields of knowledge. It's not like, well, is reality geology or is reality or is reality uh, I don't know, anthropology. 
we don't think that way. We know there are different departments of knowledge. That's why they call universities universities. You may notice a little relationship between university and universal. The idea was that a university would study universally all the different branches of human knowledge. So in the same way, just as we don't see a contradiction between geology and anthropology or archaeology, uh, people in the ancient world see that there was some kind of contradiction or battle going on between physics and metaphysics. They're just different aspects of reality. Now, even though, uh, let me put it this way. I sometimes say that, uh, for example, take psychology. Even if you don't psychology, you have one. So someone may think that, well, I don't have a particular psychology because I don't study psychology, which of course is absurd because everyone has a very specific psychology whether they're aware of it or not. In fact, if they're not aware of it, that uh, may be unfortunate. In the same way, whether or not you study philosophy, you have one. You have a philosophy. You cannot not have a philosophy unless you're dead or unconscious. And I'll explain that to you. Um, for example, everyone here does things on purpose. Every one of us does things intentionally. I mean, I hope that none of you is like absolutely enslaved and uh, you know was dragged here in chains and then temporarily released. But there are armed guards outside that will put your chains back on as soon as the talk is over. And even people down, down there making sure you don't jump out a window. So in other words, every one of us does things intentionally. Now, every time you do something intentionally, you could have done something else, or you could have done nothing at all. So why do you do this and not that? Why do you eat this and not eat that? Why do you accept one person as a friend and not someone else? Because we have values. We think some things are better than other things, or some things are more important, or more beneficial, or more pleasurable. And so your set of values, and of course, sometimes you have to uh, measure them. For example, like I'd really like to go to that dance, but I know that if I go, I will be assassinated. I have very reliable information. So, well, maybe I'll skip that dance. So we have scales of values, you know, we, and even if you don't think about it, every time you do anything, every time you go anywhere, eat anything, talk to anybody. Every time you do anything, you are revealing and acting upon your values. And your set of values are your philosophy. Because ultimately, every one of us has something which we consider most important. You can't say things anymore like something that trumps everything else because too many negative uh, associations with that word. Anyway. <laughs> So, and ultimately we all have something which we think is most, most important. For example, uh, ultimately, if it came down to it, I would give my life for whatever, my child, my parents, my, my, my brothers and sisters, my friends, to save the planet. Suddenly you woke up one day and you were in a Tom Cruise movie. Actually, he ain't too old to do his movies. But anyway, and you... Um, 
So every one of us has an ultimate value. So you have, you have a scale, a hierarchy of values. You have a philosophy, whether you're aware of it or not. So uh, what's interesting about your philosophy, which, I mean, we all have one. What's interesting is it's not in the realm of physics. It's in, it's in the realm of metaphysics. For example, if I talk about, I don't know, a, a New Zealand dollar. It's, you know, they have coins, right? So we actually found one in the park today. And then, of course, because we're devotees of Krishna, we fought over it. Anyway, <laughs> just kidding. So you can take any, any <laughs> when you belong to a religious institution, you have to have a very good sense of humor. Anyway, so we, so if you take any physical object, any physical object at all, uh, it's a physical object precisely because you can see it or you can hear it or you can touch it in some way you can perceive it or measure it. Now, let's say a value, like let's say you value justice. Let's say you value justice. And let's say your particular concept of justice is based on the ultimate uh, equality of all people. And that's that kind of the, the foundation of, of your theory of justice. Now, interestingly, justice is not a material thing. You can't, you can't, you can't, like how many justices do you have in your pocket? What colors are they? How much do they weigh? You know, are they rough or smooth? <laughs> and then when you get to something like equality, it gets even more ethereal because like take, I, I've given this example many times, but like, for example, we're in New Zealand, so why not give a local example? Um, you have democracy here, as far as I know, right? I mean, there hasn't been a military coup in the time it took me to drive over here. So, so democracy is based on an assumption that all citizens are equal, you know, citizens of a certain age, so they're more or less should be able to make adult decisions. That's a good one. In any country, that's a good one. So, but let's say, now what's interesting is empirically, again, let's go back to Aristotle's physics, which we would call empirical science. All empirical science, like all of it, we are not equal. We're not musically equal. We're not athletically equal. We're not mathematically equal. We don't all have exactly the same emotional IQ. In fact, you could not imagine any conceivable kind of empirical test that would show that even everyone in this room is equal. They're just, it, it, it's, a, it's a fairy tale to say that we're empirically equal and yet, in establishing or preserving, defending a political system in this country, a democratic system, um, the, the people of New Zealand have rejected absolutely all of empirical science and based their political system on a metaphysical assumption, something which can never be proven empirically. Same thing in Finland, right? Finland, even in America still, for maybe a few more precious years. So, 
basically all over you know what we would call what we humbly call the civilized world there is democracy anyone that any country that doesn't have democracy is basically uncivilized that's our uh, the assumption of our particular moment in history so why not only do we believe that metaphysical things like equality are real we think they're more important than empirical things like the fact that we're all different we have different abilities and so you have a situation where in what is most important in in a society like system of justice political system and all that in what is most important oh could you all come forward a little bit if 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 i if i get pressed against the wall and stop breathing that will be your that will be your indication that you've come too far oh that's okay i'll get over it you all fit in so uh, i'll go back to tonight's topic which is can there be a spiritual science at least i think what we have demonstrated so far is that there are metaphysical what we believe the metaphysical facts in the world things that are objectively true even though there's no way you can get at it empirically by normal science you can't you can't get near it and yet we all accept that these things are objectively true objective facts that are totally non-empirical such as equality so at this point uh you would have to accept unless you believe there's no such thing as equality or here's another metaphysical fact that hopefully we all accept it is morally wrong uh to torture and kill innocent people does anyone here strongly object to that interestingly if you hear what some uh, people say and obviously these are not the great thinkers of our time that say that we cannot impose our values on others has anyone ever heard that that we can impose our values on others that means that your assumption that it's wrong to torture and kill innocent people is a value by the way and therefore we should not impose it so if in new zealand you have laws against murder rape or anything like that according to these people you should you know revoke those laws repeal them because you're imposing your values on others so the next time you hear someone say we shouldn't impose our values on other on others uh see if you can help that person <laughs> we do impose our values on others that's why we, we do have laws against murder and we do have laws against rape because if you don't impose values on others basically you have absolute savagery you have absolute barbarism in which anyone can kill or rape or torture anyone else so if that sounds like a good way to go then yeah don't impose your values on others anyway the, the the sheer quantity of nonsense that goes on nowadays in in, in the name of uh, i don't know intellectuality is truly impressive so um so if you agree I, I mean i all agree that it's wrong to torture and kill innocent people and it's not and we say it's wrong 
We mean it's objectively wrong. We don't mean to say, because if you're a, if you're a hardcore materialist, you would have to say, unless if you don't want to be hypocritical, if you're really a materialist and you're going to speak coherently and consistently as a materialist, you would have to say that first of all, nothing is wrong because wrong is just, it's not empirical. Wrong, you know, there's nothing, there's no wrong you can see under a microscope. There's no physical thing which is a wrong or a right. And therefore, uh, we think that it's wrong to, let's say, torture and kill children or innocent people. We think that it's wrong merely because uh, the blind, stupid, absolutely stupid forces of nature, absolutely stupid because they're unconscious, the blind, stupid forces of nature somehow programmed us neurologically because blind, stupid forces created these neurological computers, you know, millions of times more sophisticated than the computers we built. Think about that, you know, blind, stupid forces of nature built supercomputers far beyond anything we can, that makes sense. So, um, therefore, um, we were programmed by blind, stupid nature. We were just neurologically programmed to think that it's wrong to torture and kill innocent people. And because gene pools, gene communities that believe that myth, that fable, that total fiction, that it's wrong to kill innocent people, gene pools that believe that somehow survived more efficiently than gene pools that didn't believe it. First of all, it's not clear that gene pools that didn't believe it would have a survival disadvantage, but that's another point. I mean, if you, in just a purely savage world, it's not clear that there would be a disadvantage. So if you, but that's what you have to say. If you say that, you know, we can only accept empirical things, that nothing can be objectively true, except something you can put under a microscope or look at through a telescope or whatever, that's, that, that's your position. That we are simply blind forces of nature programmed us to believe a total fiction that it's wrong to kill innocent people. And therefore, it's not really wrong. And once you've been liberated by the philosophy called materialism, you no longer, of course, you're freed from that illusion and you can just do whatever you believe to be in your rational self-interest. That is the world, by the way, which is the logical outcome of materialism. So take a good look at it, see if you like it, see if you think it's pretty. So what that illustrates is that all of us actually uh, are committed, whether we think about it or not, are completely committed to the fact that we live in a bi-dimensional universe. That there is a physical, real dimension and there is a real, objective, metaphysical universe. And we all live in it. And it's the metaphysical universe, not the physical one, that gives us justice, equality, uh, and for that matter, yesterday. I don't mean that beautiful song by Paul McCartney, which uh, if we start a bidding war here, enough money comes in, I will sing it for you. I meant yesterday because 
something, I mean, the actual day before today, because it's no longer empirically available. This gets into an interesting philosophical problem. Yesterday, which would be December 10th, doesn't exist anymore. And therefore, there is nothing that, was, that existed in yesterday that is available for your investigation yesterday. For example, this building presumably was here yesterday, but you can only study it today. You can't study it yesterday. And so if we want to be hard asana materialists, then uh, we would have to say that, and you do have to say actually, that yesterday is not available for empirical study. You can say, well, we remember that this building existed here yesterday. There is a very almost unanimous collective memory that this building was here yesterday, but, but then you're not, that's not being empirical. That's just putting your faith in memory. What if, what if we're all subject to a mass hallucination? And, which gets into an interesting point. And, and now I want to get sort of get a little more, dig down a little deeper into what it means to have a spiritual science. First, dictionary under, dictionary under the word science. Dictionaries are all, all often like, well, they're, they're sort of skewed according to con, the cultural values at the time. For example, in, in every, I looked in several dictionaries before coming here. Hope you appreciate that uh, diligent preparation. And uh, I looked up the word science and practically all the definitions, almost all the definitions, talk about the natural world. And by the natural world, they mean physical nature, which itself is a bit of question begging. In other words, it's assuming something that you can't really prove. Because if you look at history, uh, people throughout history have thought, have believed, have even claimed they know that there is also a higher world. There is a transcendental world or a spiritual world or something beyond planet Earth. And so, and the, and, and so what does it mean to be natural? If you think about it, I mean, I don't want to put out too many of these sort of head breakers. But that, that, by the way, that's how they say a uh, puzzle in Spanish, rompe cabeza. It literally means a head breaker. But uh, I don't want to break anyone's head. But. So how do you do empirical science? Well, you can't do empirical science. It's not possible to do it authentically or sincerely unless you first make a big assumption. Namely, you have to assume there's a real world outside of your mind. Now, you can't prove that empirically because that would be circular reasoning. Anyway, maybe there's too much philosophy. But it's, it, it's a major logical flaw. It's like you're trying to prove there's a real world. So if I say, look at this flower, this is obviously a real flower. I can touch it. You can see it. I can see it. But that is logically unacceptable for the simple reason that this is a real flower only if there's a real material world. If there's not a real material world outside your mind, this is not a real flower. And therefore, since the reality of this flower existing outside of your mind, that depends upon there being a real world and you're trying to prove there's a real world. You can't use this to prove it because this is true only if what you're trying to prove is true. 
Anyone, anyone want an aspirin? <laughs> so, but, but, but actually we all do accept there's a real world. We all do accept that there's a real, or I hope we all accept that. If you don't accept there's a real world, we're here to help you. So, so if you ask the question, why do we all accept that there's a real world outside of our mind, that we're not just, to use Descartes' example, we're just kind of like brains in a bottle in the laboratory of some evil genius that's just playing with us. Why do we, you know, Twilight Zone episode. Why do we accept that there's a real world? Because the nature and the quality of our experience of the world convinces us. So therefore, the reality of the world outside of us or even the reality of ourselves is what is called in philosophy self-evident. It proves itself. So if someone says, prove there's a real world out there, I would say it proves itself. I experience it in such a way that I cannot reasonably deny that it's really out there because the quality of the experience is so powerful, so real, that it proves itself to me. Now, the reason I mention this is because when you say, or is that when I say, that it really is wrong to torture and kill innocent people, that's really wrong. It's not just a fairy tale that blind nature has programmed me to believe. It, it, it really is wrong. And so if someone says, prove it, I would say the same would say if someone asked me to prove there's a real world, that my perception of the evil of harming innocent people, I can see that it's wrong at the deepest level of my consciousness, the deepest, somehow in the core of my being, the core, at, at, at the deepest part of my consciousness, I know that it's wrong. And I know some things are good, like, for example, helping people. Or I know that real love is good, not the kind of love that leads to a breakup and one of the parties kills the other. It, it's, you know, a lot of crimes are crimes of passion. So it's not the kind of, you know, deep love that turns into the most bitter hatred. The kind of so-called love that turns into bitter hatred was not really love in the first place obviously. But if we talk about real love, uh, then we know that's good. So we know that certain non-empirical, metaphysical things like justice, love, and, and certain, or that some things are really wrong, we know it in exactly the same way that we know there's a real world outside of our minds. And therefore, just as we build a foundation of science or we just build our lives on our understanding, there's a real world out there, those are real people out there, we build our moral system and ultimately our spiritual systems on our equally solid foundation that we know that there's, there are really things that are right and wrong and good and bad. And so you have to ask yourself, what kind of universe do you live in if there are completely non-empirical things, non-physical things that are objectively true, that really exist, what kind of world do you live in? And that's kind of a question more people should ask themselves. 
what must be, if, if it's true, as we know it's true, that certain things are right and wrong, that there is a real equality of all souls. If we know these things are objectively true, even though they're not empirical, what kind of world do we live in? And so uh, we live in a world in which, and so that, that kind of leads you to the God question. It leads you to the God question. It, maybe I'll just give you, try one thing out on you. And if uh, someone runs, runs screaming out of the room, that means it was too much philosophy. There actually is uh, an argument to prove there is a God, or we don't have to use the G word, which has all kinds of, you know, religious baggage. I mean, enough bang down a jumbo jet. So rather than use the G word, uh, we can just say uh, an absolute truth an absolute truth, some kind of source, an, an absolute source of everything. And this is called the argument from contingency. Hang in there. And I'll try to give it to you as painlessly as possible. It's like a doctor, you know, or a dentist, just before they, you know, do something horrible to you. I'm going to make this as painless as possible. So, Everything that we have ever experienced, including ourselves, everything that we can experience in this world, trees, buildings, oceans, other planets, has a cause to the best of our knowledge. In fact, that is a universal assumption of science, that things have causes, because that's what science is about. It's about studying causal relationships, A cause B, B and A together cause C, C minus B produces L. I mean, that's what science is. That's what medical science is. That's what physics is. That's what Newton was about. That's what quantum mechanics, that's what science is. It's studying causal relationships. Now, therefore, science assumes, and I, I will agree with science, science assumes that every physical thing in this world has a cause. Nothing just came out of nothing. So uh, that being the case, everything in this world that we've ever experienced or heard about is, to use a philosophical term, contingent. All that means is it comes from something else. Like, for example, you have your parents. You, as a, you are contingent because you're not self-born. You didn't just create yourself. You have a mother and a father. And so, and, and they had a mother and father, and, and, and they had a mother and father. And so, and so we live in a contingent world where everything is caused by something else. But now, therefore, this world cannot explain itself. Because there's nothing in this world that causes itself. So everything in this world comes from something else. So where does the world come from? How could a world in which nothing exists except dependent things, things that had to come from something else, how could that world exist at all? Because it is a possibility, not a very happy one, but we could imagine a logical possibility where nothing ever existed. Kind of not a very happy thought, but unless you're really depressed. 
But we can imagine that what if nothing ever existed? Why does anything exist? Why should anything exist? So if we just have a universe full of things that cannot explain their own existence, if the universe is filled with nothing but things that came from something else, how could any of this have ever existed in the first place? And this argument goes on to conclude that um, there must be something that exists and caused its own existence or is fully self-existent. By the way, Aristotle gave this argument also. And he was not like the most religious guy in the world, but he was a logician. Uh, he was a, had a very scientific mind. Anyway, so Aristotle calls it the unmoved mover. That's, that's Aristotle's language. That everything in this universe has to be moved by something else or caused by something else. But logically, he, he concluded on logical grounds, not because he was very religious and you know, went to some, I don't know, Greek temple every day. But on logical grounds, he said, and he's a father of modern logic, by the way, he said that there must be an unmoved mover. There must be a prime mover, a first mover. Otherwise, how could anything else exist? And by the way, uh, a, a first mover or prime mover or... Uh, or, or a, a fully self-existing being would not only explain the physical universe, it would explain the metaphysical universe as well. Actually, there's only one universe, but it's bi-dimensional. So because all of us accept there are real things in the world that are not empirical, such as equality, justice, that it's bad to kill innocent people, because all of us accept there are real facts in the universe that are not material, that are not physical, that are not empirical. Therefore, it follows logically that empirical science can never, under any conditions, give a complete explanation of reality. And so anyone that claims that empirical science can explain everything is actually cheating, or they just they wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. Empiricals, another point about empirical science, and that is the, the, the essence of the empirical method, as it is sometimes called, is the controlled experiment. That's what you do. If you're an empirical scientist, you either in your laboratory or through your telescope or wherever, you perform a controlled experiment. Now, there's one thing wrong with this picture, and that is you can never study anything that you can't control. So if someone says that we, can't, we cannot accept, as you may, in fact, hear sometimes in universities from sort of pseudo-intellectual professors or something, uh, you may hear the claim that nothing can be accepted as objectively true unless you can demonstrate it empirically. Like sometimes if, if people know that you are somehow, uh, I don't know, you know, emotionally damaged and believe in God, they may, they may say something like, we'll prove it. And so it's like if you say, I believe there's gold in this rock 
and someone you know gives you a microphone and says prove it you say well, what does a microphone got to do with testing minerals you say well it's a scientific instrument <laughs> So if, so if someone says that you should not accept anything as objectively true unless, unless it is empirically demonstrated, uh, two major problems with that. One, you cannot empirically demonstrate that that statement is true. Because the statement that only empirically demonstrated things can be, should be accepted as objectively true, that's not, an, you can't empirically test that statement. It would involve the most absurd circular reasoning. And therefore, if that statement is true, it's not true. If only empirically verified things are true, that statement is not true. So a statement which, if true, is not true, is meaningless. It is a meaningless statement. It doesn't mean anything. So in terms of serious logic, like formal logic, Someone that says that only things empirically demonstrated should be accepted as true, they actually didn't say anything. It, logically, it's sort of on the same level as saying, hey, I just saw this really interesting uh, square circle. If someone claims they saw a square circle, you don't have to go look to see if they really saw one. I mean, if someone, let's say someone who normally... <laughs> Because the English word square and circle are contradictory and cannot describe the same thing. If someone says, I just saw a purple unicorn, you would obviously think it's not true because we all know unicorns are white. But, <laughs> but still, if someone claimed, if someone claimed, I, I saw a purple unicorn, I, I swear, it's right in the next room, you know, just to humor them, or you might go and look and say, well, no, there's no unicorn there. But if someone says, I saw a square circle, you don't have to go and look, because there is no such thing, and there, there cannot be such a thing. Similarly, so, so the first problem with claiming that everything has to pass, you know, that, that empirical science is the gatekeeper of reality, uh, the first serious problem with that is that it's a self-contradictory claim. Ultimately, it's a meaningless claim. The second problem, the first problem is logical. The second obvious problem is psychological. Because what people are actually saying when they say that is that nothing can exist unless I can control it. I mean, think about that. As I always say, that is not a philosophical claim. It's an emotional disorder. That is clearly an emotional disorder. And so really, at the heart of of this sort of fanatical empiricism or scientism is really, it's really just an emotional disorder. Nothing that I cannot control exists, or you could never say anything exists unless I can control it. So this is all nonsense. And I mean, it's it, at every level of nonsense and no one's intimidated by it. It's just nonsense. So what would have to be the case what would we need to have a true spiritual science? Uh, if you all will kindly put another coin in the meter, I'll tell you. Anyway, what would we need to actually have a spiritual science? Um, in the dictionary, one definition of science, which is kind of the easy one, it's sort of the, 
the easy definition is any systematic body of knowledge, like the example given in the usually terrible Apple Dictionary, was um, the science of criminology. So, um, of course, if we say a systematic body of knowledge, so by that easy definition, sure, you could have a spiritual science, you could have a systematic body of spiritual knowledge, but maybe it's not as easy as it looks because who's to say it's knowledge? And that's the real point, right? Who is the judge? Who gets to say whether a spiritual claim is true or not? Interesting question. So let's jump back for a second to empirical knowledge. How many people in this room can personally read and completely understand the most advanced development in contemporary physics? And it may be someone, but can anyone here, you know, you know those papers where uh, it's just like all gobbledygook, all these equations and symbolic logic and everything? How, I mean, how many people, I mean, how many of us really understand the absolute cutting edge of any serious science? I mean, you'd have to not only, I mean, having a PhD in the field would just be beginning. You have to go way beyond just having a PhD from a serious school in the field. You'd have to do all kinds of postgraduate work. You'd have to be keeping up practically on a daily basis with research. And yet, if you look at the world, People accept science, even though no one can verify it. So if you're talking about accepting things on faith, and, and if you look at real statistics uh, of, of studies, um, the percentage of people in the world, certainly in the United States, the, or, and the percentage of people who claim they have had some kind of personal experience of something like a deity or a divine force or power or you know whatever what they call it, god or the universe or the goddess or or the energy or whatever the percentage of people who claim they've personally had a self-verifying convincing experience some kind of spiritual divine reality is much 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 higher than the percentage of people who can actually read and understand scientific papers. And so what's interesting here is that the only reason anyone takes science seriously is not because of that page after page of incomprehensible symbolic logic. The reason people take science seriously is because of applied science, because you go to the dentist, you take a commercial jet flight because, you know, they, because of all the applied science. We don't accept science because we actually understand what they're doing. It's because of the practical applications that we feel benefit our lives. So um, in the same way, so, so let's, you know, like there's an old saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Amazing, the sex equality in that statement. The gender equality, I should say. Anyway, so if you think about spirituality, um, 
studies, actual scientific or social scientific studies show that people who are seriously religious, not in the sense of, you know, I'm going to just people for God or Allah or whatever, but people who, let's say, in a sense that most people could agree on are pious in the sense that uh, they believe in something like a God and they believe that uh, God requires them to be nice to other people, to be charitable, and uh, they have faith that there's some ultimate purpose to their life and that virtue is rewarded somewhere eventually. And what studies show is that people that strongly believe that actually in many ways have better lives. They tend to be more peaceful. They tend to recover more quickly from injuries and diseases. They tend to be more charitable. They tend to have happier families. And so, and so it's interesting. So, I mean, you could call this applied theology or just, so, so we have this parallelism. We, we have these two dimensions, the physical and the metaphysical, in both of which most people, hardly anyone really understands what the experts, so-called experts are doing. But in both cases, there are actually benefits that derive from what each group claims to be knowledge. And so to really have a spiritual science, I would say the minimum requirements would be uh, that following a particular path actually people's lives. And of course, that would let in the gate uh, a lot of different traditions, which is nice. I mean, there are a lot of different traditions around the world who can demonstrate that those, those who seriously practice what they teach uh, are actually benefiting in different ways. Their lives are improved by it. So that would have to be the case. And conversely, it would have to be the case that people who are considered within that tradition to be advanced or serious practitioners or faithful don't do really evil things like kill innocent people or, or frankly engage in predatory capitalism which would kind of knock out of the box a whole bunch of people that believe they're religious in the United States. So, I mean, we, we have the, I mean, America's blessed with a certain group of people who believe that basically Jesus came to this world to uh, introduce predatory capitalism and the right to purchase assault weapons. I'm not saying that everyone that believes in Jesus holds those views, but there definitely is a group. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, I would have to say there are benefits and, and in that group, people who, let's say, belong to a particular tradition don't habitually do bad things, don't habitually hold views which can be demonstrated to be actually harmful to themselves and society. At the same time, um, in terms of their theology or philosophy, like what they think the supernatural or the divine is, uh, it should not be self-contradictory. It should not be self-contradictory. For example, uh, saying that God is all-merciful and God tortures his own children forever, at times for relatively minor theological mistakes, uh, I would consider to be a contradiction, a philosophical contradiction. So, 
uh, I, I'm not bashing any religion because in all the major religions of the world, there are many admirable people who really are very sincere and very devoted and, and deserve our respect. But so I, I think there would have to be consistency. And also I would sneak in here an argument by a uh, medieval Christian philosopher from the high middle ages uh, named Anselm. You may have heard of St. Anselm to the faithful. Anselmo in the Latin. And he gave a very famous ontological argument for the existence of God. And ontological simply means it's about the nature of existence itself. And so I will, this is, I'll tell you what Anselm said because I think there's something true about it. I won't say it's a proof of God's existence, but I think there is an important truth in the argument. So what Anselm said was, um, God, I'll say it slowly, so I'll try not to make this too technical. God is that being, then whom? Wait, let me put that in more simple English. God, God means, God is God because you cannot imagine a greater being. In other words, if, if someone says this is God and someone says, well, I can imagine a better God than that, namely one that doesn't need, you know, a whole series of 12-step programs for anger management, jealousy, and, you know. So a God that doesn't need 12-step programs is, you know, probably more true than a God that does need 12-step programs. So, so that was Anselm's argument, that in a sense, the greater the, if God is infinitely great, and of course, it's based on this assumption that God is an infinitely great being. So logically, if that's the case, that God is an infinitely great being, then the greater your conception of God, the closer to the truth. The greater your conception so that it, when you come to an idea of God you, and, and no one can imagine a greater idea of God, then that is the truest uh, understanding of God, or at least it's closest to the truth. They believed in religious freedom. They believed that uh, physics and metaphysics are just two ways of getting knowledge. And then what stopped all this? With, with the collapse of the Rome, with the fall of the Roman Empire, and then uh, the, the Dark Ages. By the way, the term Dark Ages is not just being politically incorrect, it was the people that created the Renaissance. That's, that's the term they use, the Dark Ages. And so in the Dark Ages, you have religious fanaticism. You know, you can be killed if you don't join the right church. And uh, there is no science. And then you start to get the Renaissance, the Renaissance of this Greco-Roman culture, by the way. And then you start to get science again, and science, metaphysics and metaphysics, our partners, they're working together. They're just different fields of knowledge until you get to the Protestant Reformation and then you get the rejection of science, the rejection of pagan philosophy or philosophy in general. Anyway, it's a whole history. And, and you get the persecution of science, you know, the trial of Galileo, who uh, he made two mistakes. He disagreed with the church and also apparently he was an extremely obnoxious person. But anyway, so you get the trial of Galileo, the scientists don't tell you that, but 
And so you get this battle between science and religion. Of course, religion controls everything. The churches have power. And finally, you get the, you know, the, you get all these revolutions, scientific revolution, political revolutions, French revolution, American revolution, religious freedom. Uh, you get the rise of secularism. And the secularists, the materialists, take over the universities. So when the church controlled all the universities, and for, I mean, they created the universities a thousand years ago, they controlled them all. So if you didn't belong to the right church, you couldn't get a job in a university. And then when the secularists took over the universities, it was payback time. So if you were religious, you couldn't get a job in a university. And so all this nonsense is going on back and forth for centuries. And what I'm proposing, why don't we just go back to sanity and just recognize that physics and metaphysics are two ways to get reliable, important knowledge about the world. And uh, we need a spiritual science. We need a, a material science. And we have, and we have, we need to do that. So that, that, that's basically uh, what I wanted to say. And uh, so uh, to your, so I'll stop there. Now, if you have any questions, um, try to address your questions. S sudden unexpected ending, left everyone speechless. Yes. Can you elaborate on spiritual science? Elaborate on spiritual science. Yeah. Well, to you as an individual, if you're practicing what somebody else claims to be a spiritual science, then you have to get results that convince you that you are really practicing a spiritual science. And so what are the elements of any science? You have to have a theory or a philosophy. You have to have a method to confirm it. And so, for example, in Krishna consciousness, Bhagavad Gita and so on, we have, I mean, just for the, to use neutral language here, we have a theory. I mean, we don't think it's a theory. We think it's, it's a true description of reality, at least part of reality. But for the sake of neutral discussion, you could say we have a theory. And then we have a process which we claim will confirm that theory. And so if the theory itself, the philosophy itself, if it's coherent, it doesn't contradict itself, it's not just too bizarre. Like what if someone says, I have an entirely, an internally consistent philosophy that the world was created by the divine pineapple that sits in the sky uh, shedding invisible juice that then travels across space, enters into our minds and bodies, and gives us the gift of life. So, yeah, I mean, you could say there's nothing internally contradictory there, but it's it's very bizarre. So let's say a particular philosophy is not just like too bizarre and it doesn't contradict itself. And also it has to be complete. In other words, just as science, empirical science can't explain the metaphysical dimension of reality. Uh, so a a candidate for spiritual truth should, should explain things, should explain the world. And of course, not claim to explain what it can't really explain. You could say, well, if, if your holy book explains everything, you know, who's gonna win the horse race tomorrow? 
And so, you know, there are limitations. So, so, and then you have to practice it because, and Krishna says, pratyakshavagamam, that this process leads to understanding by direct perception. Throughout the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about knowledge as seeing. You know, not just knowledge in the sense you memorize something and then take a test, but serious knowledge, deep understanding. Krishna always talks about it as seeing. You see the truth. So you, I would say you have to be intellectually satisfied. You have to be experientially satisfied. You have to see that you are actually perceiving, experiencing a spiritual realm and that in your own life, you are coming to a higher state of consciousness. You are becoming free from attachments, which you know do not help you and even harm you and are irrational. I mean, all of us, there are certain things in our life we wish we didn't do, but we do them. Or there are certain things we wish we did, and we don't do them. Sometimes people you know, get into relationships which they know are going to be miserable. And sure enough. So the power, the power to always act upon your best understanding, your best intelligence, that power is something which should come to you by spiritual practice. So in all those ways, ultimately, you have to confirm to yourself uh, that you are in fact engaged in a spiritual science. Anything else? Going, going, gone, okay. <laughs> Thank you all very much, and it was a pleasure to be here with you. So there's going to be dinner, and uh, maybe some calories will... Uh...